Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. This message this morning, I almost... It's gone through a little, just getting here to this point has been kind of a weird week because when Angela Bensel was saying something last week during praise and worship about David and Goliath, uh, my, you remember that? Uh, my mind immediately went to this message or a version of it. I've preached it two or three times, uh, at least twice here, and uh, once not so long ago, but I was thinking about it, and uh, really should have just started deciding, or I, I wasn't thinking about preaching it, I was thinking about having preached it, but my mind has never been too far from it all week, but I just, I just really didn't see myself preaching it again, because I don't think it's been that long, I don't think it's been two years since I preached it, maybe a year and a half, I don't know, uh, I'll go back and I could probably find it, but I, you know, go back and find it, find out I preached it three months ago, that would be embarrassing, but I'm uh, pretty sure it's been longer than that. But I think, wow, well, maybe you should space these things out. Don't preach the same message or a version of the same message uh, for at least five years. But there's nothing in the Bible that says that. Did you know that? And uh, Friday night, I was over at Pastor Hagen, listening to Pastor Hagen uh, over there at Midwest Believers Church. And it was a great service. How many of you were there? I know several of you. Yeah, it was a wonderful service. Uh, but if you heard anything new in terms of faith, healing, these truths, uh, I'd be very surprised. Nothing he said was, oh, that's mind-blowing. That is a facet of healing I've never considered. He just got up and just told the same basic principles of faith that most of you have heard a hundred times. It was the same way sitting under Brother Hagin all those years ago. Uh, I never heard him say one thing in in two years of sitting under his ministry at Ramah that I hadn't already read in a book, hadn't already heard him say half dozen times, doesn't make it any less valuable. The more you hear those things, the more they get nailed down, right? And, uh, if, and I guess it was just kind of a release at that point. It's like, you know, if, if, if Pastor Hagen can preach the same stuff for 50 plus years, uh, I certainly can. He's got a wealth of experience and stories and, and everything else that he could draw on, but he just stays in his lane and preaches this, the, the word the plain word, the simple truth of healing when God tells him to. Uh, and so I, I guess all I'm saying is I shouldn't have been digging in my heels against preaching this. I would have had an easier week if I had just realized this is where I was supposed to go this week. Uh, but here it is. Uh, and I'll start here this time. Um, you know, there's a, a catechism, the West, Westminster Catechism, uh, it's just over 100 questions that you, when you learn this, you're supposed to be able to answer according to this. And I'm not saying I agree with everything in it. I don't know. But the first question is the most famous one, which is this. What is the chief end of man? Uh, it's kind of like saying, why are we here? And, uh, and it's not a matter of what are our origins as much as it is a matter of our purpose as Christians. And that sort of, uh, so it's a harder question than you, than, than you might think of when you say, why did God create man? For, for what reason did God create man? You know, you may have heard when you were little that God was lonely 
and he needed company, so he made people. Uh, but we know that's not true, right? God is completely, uh, I think it was Ravi Zacharias years ago told the story about applying to seminary. And uh, one of the th- questions on this, on this form, on this application was, uh, God is perfect, explain. God is perfect, explain. And they always followed that up with a joke that said, I think the only harder question I could imagine would be define God and give two examples. So anyway, but his answer was this, God is the only being in existence, the reason for whose existence lies within himself. That's it. God is utterly self-sufficient. Everyone and everything else looks outside itself to a cause for a reason, for existence. God alone is I am. So he doesn't need us. He didn't need the company. Uh, There is a perfect fellowship, perfect community in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, A a better answer, it's not the best answer, but a better answer is that uh, God is love, and love needs an object. Love needs something to love. Uh, But again, there's love in the fellowship of the Trinity. But this this is my favorite answer. God is love, and love does not withhold what love has the power to give. God created us for our sake. God knew he could, that we could live if he made us live, so he made us live. All right? Now, but the question is not, why did God create us? He create us, but what is our end? What is our chief goal? What is the chief end of man? And the answer, the correct answer, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's pretty good. And it's a good answer when somebody says, well, why did God create us? Just to serve him? Just to obey him? No. He created us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That's our chief end. I think it's also, it should be obvious, although we get accused as word of faith people uh, into not seeing it this way, but I think we're, most of us here are mature enough to know better. We know that God does not exist to serve us, right? His purpose for being is himself, is in himself, and that means he doesn't exist for the purpose of making you happy. He doesn't exist for the purpose of making you healthy or prosperous. That's all about our relationship with him, but it's not why he exists. Now, so far, so good. But, as you know, many well-meaning people, even believers, have gone much too far. Since God is God and not us, and this came up again and again during the healing, pass- or healing messages, that series. But if God is God and we're not, then, and if it suits his inscrutable purposes to make us sick, to make us poor, to make us suffer, that's his prerogative. We exist to serve him, please him, not the other way around. Uh, And they, of course, this extends all the way into divine election that the only reason anybody is saved and the only reason anybody goes to hell is because God has determined that they will be saved or that they will go to hell, and we have no say in the matter. I reject that thinking. Most of you do too. Uh, But they say, he'll heal some, he'll kill some, he'll prosper some, he'll make some, uh, he'll strike some with poverty. And the problem with that kind of theology as you know, especially when it comes to healing, is you have to ignore so much of the Bible to get there. And I know there's more to it. Now, I know there is. There must be. But sometimes I wonder if so much bad theology like that is just a sophisticated way of throwing up our hands and saying, since I can't figure it out, it just must be because God wants it that way. 
We just get tired of trying to figure it out. We don't, but some do. Anyway, I'm not going to question God, and I'm not going to try to figure this stuff out. I'm not going to try to change anything. God's just going to do what God's going to do. And what I love about the true message of the word of faith, and I know there's a toxic brand of it out there, is that it provides an answer to why so many Christians are not living in abundance, living in health, living in victory. It's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. But we must know the promise, we must believe the promise, and we must speak the promise. It's not just inner faith that brings these things into our lives manifestly, but faith's confession, the word of faith. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. The tongue is powerful, but we, and we have to appreciate its power. And if we're not speaking, you're not, we're not appreciating its power. Or if we're speaking the wrong things, we are abusing the power of the tongue. We say all these things that we don't mean. We say things, we curse people uh, with the same tongue that we bless God with. And then we wonder why our confession doesn't work when we desperately need God working in our lives, right? So uh, before I get into the scripture we're going to look at, uh, I guess uh, I, I'm going to address just a little bit what I think is the uh, danger of the word of faith. But it's not just word of faith. It's, it's mankind in general. If we're not careful, we can slip into believing and acting like the chief end of man is to enjoy not God, but this life. Because we believe in healing, because we believe that God delights in prospering his, his servant and certainly his sons and daughters, that therefore, uh, and since he delights in blessing us, we can get our eyes on this life, this world, and love it. And there's certainly nothing wrong with enjoying it and appreciating it, but that this love of this world, I'm not talking about loving people, I'm talking about the love of this world can really hold us back when it comes to pursuing God and anticipating the, the ultimate life and ultimate world that he has for us. That the chief end of God is to bless us heal us, prosper us. That's not it. Look at uh, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, this is Jesus, what is it, sorry, what was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and the servant of all. And this is one of those great moments where, you know, keep in mind that they are following Jesus, becoming more and more convinced that since he is the Messiah, any day now he's going to overthrow Rome, he's going to reestablish the powerful, glorious throne of Israel, and that they are going to be Right there. They're going to be on the inside. And so they're talking about since we are, we're the closest to him now, who do you think is going to get the best post? Who's going to be the king's right-hand man when Jesus is enthroned? And this is what they're talking about. And they're even talking about this the closer and closer they get to Jesus' death. And Jesus knows they're talking about it. So he says, hey, on our way here, uh, before we got to the house here in Capernaum, what were you guys talking about? And they're all like, Nothing. And then he just says, hey, if anyone desires to be the greatest, here's how you do it. Consider yourself last. Become a servant of all. 
This is the model Jesus gives us. But it's hard to adopt the mindset of a servant if all you hear is that you're the head and not the tail, that you are the child of the king. There's a great line in a Steve Taylor song. Uh, We're king's kids, dang it, and we used to know what a housekeeper was for. Uh, But we are king's kids. We are the head and not the tail, but that doesn't mean we are above serving anybody. It's a dichotomy, I understand. But Jesus is the best example we have. Jesus never lacked. Jesus enjoyed life. Jesus was protected. Jesus had all of his needs met. And yet, everywhere he went, he served. The beauty of the truth of God's promises, these blessings, these healings, provision, protection, all this stuff, the victory, is that we are promised these things for the purpose of serving more effectively. This is what we have to keep in mind and stop kidding ourselves that, oh God, if you will just do this, then I will do this, 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 and this, when really we just want, we want these blessings so that we can enjoy them, period. We've got to keep our eyes on the prize. We've got to be about doing kingdom business. This is the story I want to look at. And again, I know many of you have heard this, and I just can't remember how recently you heard it from me. Uh, but I also know there's a, there, there'll be some who might be hearing this for the first time, and I always get excited preaching this message. And this is, uh, I mentioned David and Goliath, and this is the setup. The, the Philistine army is encamped against the Israelite army, led by King Saul. And uh, for 40 days, they've been facing each other, and a champion from the Philistines, a battle-hardened warrior named something or other, no, Goliath. Remember, you guys know how tall he was, right? Nearly 10 feet tall, like 9 feet 9 inches tall, and big and strong. And he would come down every day and taunt uh, the Israelite army, saying, give me a man to fight. Instead of the whole army's clashing, he says, just send one guy to fight me. And if he kills me, we'll become your servants. If we kill him, you become our servants. This is known as single combat. And sometimes... That's actually the way it worked. Normally it wasn't. You, the, the single combat warrior thing really did happen, but it rarely took place of the whole armies clashing. Usually what followed that was full-on full, full on combat between the armies, but the army of the winning soldier was emboldened. Okay, there, ah, the gods must be with us. Our guy won. And this is kind of what would have happened. I don't think no matter what happened, the, the Israelites and the Philistines weren't going to fight. But... It was still a scary thing because nobody wanted to be the one to go down there and die. Fight Goliath. So, uh, anyway, we're not even going to read the part of the battle, the sling, uh, and the stone. But you do remember that uh, David, uh, at this time, was the younger brother of a few of Saul's soldiers. His older brothers were in the army. David was too young, probably just barely too young, but we don't know exactly. Uh, but his father sends him some uh, bread, takes some bread and cheese and says, take this to your brothers and uh, greet them for me. Uh, it's, share this with the officers over there. He's trying to make sure his sons are taken care of on the battlefield. And just come back and tell me how they're doing. And David uh, drops off the supplies and runs to his brothers to greet them. And we'll pick it up here in 1 Samuel chapter 17 beginning in verse 23. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, 
the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all of the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing, and these people answered him as the first ones did. Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Now, from there on, that's the part we're most familiar with. Saul allows David to face Goliath. David kills Goliath, Goliath with a sling and a stone. But what I want you to see is this. When David saw Goliath, remember, most of you do, his response was, "Mm, I wouldn't want to fight that guy either. His response was, who is this uncircumcised Philistine, and this is what Angela was sharing with us. He doesn't have a covenant. We are God's covenant people. He has promised us victory. They don't have a God who promises them anything. They might claim they do, but their God isn't even real. Our God is the one true God. We are in an actual covenant, a contract with him. He doesn't have that. Where does he get off defying the armies of the living God? He had made up his mind to kill him already, if nobody else would. Why was David not afraid? You know, when these soldiers were looking at Goliath, they saw a guy who was way bigger than them. When David looked at Goliath, he saw a guy who was way smaller than God. It's who are you comparing him to, right? And because God had been with David when he took on a bear, When he took on a lion, he killed both of them just to protect the sheep. He knew what God could do in his life. So when he heard Goliath, he was going to go kill him. But then he heard these guys say, you know what will happen? If somebody actually goes down there and kills this giant, the king's going to make him rich. The king's going to make him part of the royal family. And the king is going to exempt his, his father's household from taxes. And David said, hey, he goes to a different group and says, what will the king do for somebody who kills this giant? And they tell him the same thing. And then his brothers come up and say, what are you doing here? Stop acting uh, all holy. You just came out, you, you wanted to see a battle. And David's like, can you blame me? Look at this. Who wouldn't want to see this? Then he turns and asks a third time, 
what will the king do for somebody who kills this giant? Now, what you've got to see, because I think this is crucial. I think this is why David was able to do what he was able to do. He was asking for clarification. David was going to kill Goliath anyway, if nobody else did. He experienced righteous indignation when he heard Goliath come out and utter these threats. David trusted God so perfectly and loved God so much that that was how it affected him when Goliath, he, was pers- he felt personally insulted. And it probably alarmed him probably offended him that nobody else, even Saul himself, had already, it's been 40 days and nobody had taken care of this giant already. But they were a faithless bunch. They saw themselves, you know, and they they come from a long line of uh, a faithless bunch, you know. Remember, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. (sighs) But David was just looking at, I've got a covenant, this giant does not. So David's going to kill Goliath, but he hears about this bonus. And I want you to see that David's response to the riches, to the tax exemption, to the king's daughter was not, oh, please, don't offend me by offering me payment. I'm doing this just because it's my duty as a Jew. He didn't do that. He's going to kill him anyway. But when he heard this promise, when he heard this bonus, he said, wait a minute, what? It wasn't, hey, I'll do it if you do this for me. It's, I'm going to do it, but you're telling me if I do it, I get this? Just making sure. Hey, I heard that the king will do this. Is this true? Yes. Oh, hey, brother. Hey, I heard three times he focuses on this reward, but he's not doing it for the reward. You see what I'm saying here when it comes to us? We can... We see a promise in the Word of God. If we're standing for healing, if we're praying for provision, uh, we, get, we can get ourselves tripped up by maybe accusing ourselves or allowing somebody else's bad theology to accuse us of being selfish. But God put those promises in there for a reason. But we don't go to God and say, hey, I'll go to church, I'll accept Jesus, I will do this, if you will just heal me, if you will just prosper me. It has to be the same way. I see who God is. I see what he has commanded, what he has said, what he has provided, and I'm going to submit to that because it's true. But if you are telling me there are other things attached to that, I want to know what they are. Because God put those in there for us to see, not to ignore. He knows what we're made of because he made us. The word warns us against the lust of the flesh, but God made our flesh too. And we can and absolutely should enjoy what God has made for us to enjoy. The key is to enjoy legitimate pleasures, even the ones that satisfy the flesh, without being ruled by those legitimate pleasures. Ruled by our appetite for the very pleasures that God has provided. God is the God of all flesh, And it is not Christianity that says spiritual maturity is achieved by extinguishing those desires. 
And there are some who've taught that. Hey, they call it mortification. I want to get to the point where nothing, where, where I'm not tempted or, or uh, where I don't even enjoy. I'm only going to eat bland food. I'm only going to sleep on hard surfaces because I want God to be my only pleasure. That's really more like Buddhism, this idea of extinguishing these, these earthly desires. God made this earth, and he made it for us, and he built us in such a way that we can enjoy what this earth produces and what we produce for one another. I, I believe the pillow was a God idea. It's better than a rock, right? And God doesn't apologize for appealing to that. Why would he say things like, at his right hand are what? Pleasures forevermore. We shouldn't be seeking pleasure. I'm seeking God, but guess what's right there with him? Pleasures. Also notice this in 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So, Clearly, this is his motive. Interesting. He had, uh, you know, doing something for the right reason doesn't mean you ignore the benefits. But David, after clarifying, remember three times, what will the king do for the man who kills this giant? He didn't rush out there with, <laughs> I'm just trying to picture David swinging this stone around saying, I'm going to be free of taxes and I'm going to marry the king's daughter and I'm going to be rich. Woohoo! That's not what he's speaking. He's got God's interests in mind as he's completing this mission. I'm coming at you because I have a covenant with God. You have defied him. God's going. This is the faith he is speaking. The faith he's speaking isn't to claim the promises. It's to walk in that provision, to walk in the mission that God had for him at that moment. But it's important to speak those things out as well. We've talked about, and, and this is part of what really the focus of this message is, some people don't get healed. Some people don't get their needs met. Some people don't get their prayers answered because they don't know the will of God. They call it faith when they're just sitting there letting things happen to them. Well, my faith is strong, so whatever happens, I'm going to continue to believe. Well, no, faith begins where the will of God is known, so we see a promise for healing, and we stand on it, and we speak it because you're not going to, you have no right to expect to walk in a blessing of God that you, doesn't, you don't know exists. So we find the, pro, uh, the, so the first part is to know what God's will is, but there are a lot of people who know it who still aren't receiving it. Why? Because they won't put words behind it. David didn't have to say a thing, did he, if he already knew, but he was saying it. When we speak the will of God over our lives, it shouldn't just be about, God's going to do this for me. He's going to make me well. He's going to enrich me. It should be, I can do. When we're talking about doing all things for Christ, I can do all things through Christ, it, it should be, we should be just as passionate about, I can live a holy life. I can speak in ways and act in ways and conduct myself in conversation and relationships with people that constantly glorify Jesus 
that represent Jesus well. I can live my life in a way that draws people to Christ because he has empowered me to do that. I am someone going somewhere to do something for God today. But yes, absolutely, when you see a promise, claim that as well. But keep your priorities straight and keep saying the things that you're supposed to say. Words are powerful. It's, my goodness, good to see you here today, brother. Army, good old uh, infantry senior NCO over here. Uh, But I'm sure you probably don't start the day every day the same way you did at basic training. But do you remember what an important part, anybody who was at boot camp or basic training, remember what an important part these chants were? You, you didn't just go out quietly to do PT or to, or to go anywhere. You started every class with a boom, pounding on the desk and shouting and talking about what a powerful platoon you were, a powerful company you were. And you started to believe it after a few weeks. Everybody walked out of basic training ready to go to war. You weren't ready, but you felt ready. But it's not just a matter of, of, of uh, being motivated. You know, Goliath was out there shouting things that weren't true. But what he was shouting was emboldening the other Philistines till that rock hit him in the head. David was not only motivated and shouting, but what he was shouting and what he was speaking was based on something true. You can't just shout it loud and, ho- and make it true. You combine, your true, you combine the truth with your confession, and it becomes a powerful, powerful weapon. Now, I got way off my notes here. Hang on a second. Yeah, so doing something for the right reasons doesn't make you ignore the benefits. You know, I'm not going to do this so that I can marry the king's daughter and get out of paying taxes and get a lot of money. It's just that I'm going to do something that honors God no matter what. And if God said, oh, and by the way, when you do this, here's what I do for you, we don't glorify him by refusing to embrace that promise. See what I'm saying? Why, why would you be dumb enough, you, you, get, you land the dream job, this is probably my favorite illustration here, you, oh, I just want to get on, I've heard such great things about this company, it's the kind of work I want to do, and somebody contacts you and says, we want to hire you, great, you go in for the interview, and they confirm, yes, you are the man or woman for this job, and not only that, it's going to pay more than you thought it was, and you're like, great, this is all I wanted, and they say, and by the way, here's a list of the benefits, full dental for you and your family, full vision for you and your family, full health care for you and your family, Uh, three weeks vacation instead of two, four weeks vacation instead of three, after two years it goes up, and you get this much, uh, this many personal days, and you go, whoa, 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 I don't need all that, I just want the job. Are you being magnanimous there, or are you being a fool? You're being a fool. No, 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 the job comes with the, oh, you, you you don't need to do all that for me to get me to work here. You working here, include, it's just part of the compensation package. It's the same way with our salvation. You know? We don't honor God by saying, oh God, I don't care if you heal me. I don't care if you prosper me. The only thing I care about is that you saved me. Now when we understand what salvation is, I get it. It's far more important than anything else. But when God says, oh and by the way, when I saved you, I promise I'm going to protect you. I promise I'm going to heal you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to use you to bless others. What response is God looking for? Oh, no, 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 no. 
All I want is heaven when I die. Well, why don't I just kill you now and bring you here then? I got things for you to do, and you need my blessings to do them. So start claiming those blessings, and don't be shy about it, but make sure you're doing it in a way that glorifies God, because only when you glorify God will you enjoy Him, and He wants you to enjoy Him forever. I promise you, you will not strike God as being greedy and ungrateful when you are determined to receive what he promises to give you. We glorify him when we walk in his blessings and when we claim his promises. So, here's where I land for now, anyway. If you are not interested in glorifying God, if you are not interested in growing in grace, if you're not interested in discovering and fulfilling God's purpose for your life, then you are going to have a hard time receiving what God has promised you. Does that make sense? You're going to have a hard time keeping those things when the enemy comes to steal them. Because ultimately everything he blesses you with is to equip you to grow in grace, discover and fulfill your purpose, and glorify him. And it's like this with giving. Whether or not you believe that we as New Covenant believers are uh, commanded to tithe, you have to recognize that we are commanded, expected to give. Give generously, even give sacrificially. And if we know that, we should not hesitate to live like that consistently. And we know that there is a joy that comes just from participating in that. If he had just said, look, I've done this for you, here's where you are, make sure that you give generously, make sure you give sacrificially, for this is my command, we ought to be satisfied and just go do that. But we'd be fools to ignore the promises that he's attached to obedience. You understand, we can obey and even rejoice in our obedience and just give without expecting anything. But God expects us to expect something. Look at this. This is one of my favorite passages. Well, we'll start with this one, then I'll get to my favorite one. In Philippians 4, beginning in verse 15, uh, Paul writes, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, that last verse is the one we stand on, but notice this is a very specific set of circumstances. You are the only ones that partnered in giving and receiving with me. More than once, you sent to, uh, you gave sacrificially, you gave, you know, it's you couldn't just send a check back then. They had to work to get the gift to him. He says, you did this consistently, and my God shall supply your needs according to his riches and glory. Now, that is a truth that we can embrace, but I think we can only truly in faith embrace it if we are partnered with God in giving and receiving. Second Corinthians chapter 9, and it's interesting how... Uh, not just this chapter, but verses surrounding this chapter, is just one long account of Paul taking up an offering. But this is my favorite part. 
2 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Man, oh man. You know how powerful that is? He's not saying, and every now and then I'm going to bless you so that you can bless uh, a special ministry here and there. No, you are always, again, all grace abound toward you that always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. How can, you, how can you not say, he is specifically talking about an offering here, and people still want to look at a passage like that and say, he's not talking about money. He's absolutely talking about money. He's not limiting it to money because he says all things, but all things surely includes money, and money is what the main thing he's talking about here. And what's he saying? You give generously, all right, uh, bountifully, and that's how you're going to reap, and that's what I want. The more you give, the more you're going to get, and this is my plan for you because the more you get, the more you can give. This is what it's for. If we are believing for prosperity so we can pile it up, we are on shaky ground. But what's his, what's his will? So that you have an abundance for what? For old age? Uh, an abundance so you can uh, What? What's it specifically for? For every good work. It means that every time there's an opportunity to bless somebody, you've got the resources to bless them. Uh, Praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. Let's, uh, and you can stand with me. You've been seated a while, and I'm wrapping this up. And what can I say other than let's commit ourselves to knowing and knowing and knowing, reminding ourselves and reminding ourselves and reminding ourselves of what God expects of us and what God has promised of us. And let's consistently do it. I want to hear healing testimonies. I still want to hear what God has done for you over these past few weeks as we have laid hands on the sick, as we've ministered healing, as we've taught on healing. I know God is continuing to do some things in your lives, but I want to stress again the power of the tongue. If you had hands laid on you and you did not experience an instantaneous miraculous healing, do not, don't you dare come to the conclusion that nothing happened. Remind yourself that hands were laid on me and the power of God came into my body and began to affect a healing and a cure. Keep speaking it over yourselves. Don't stop until you see the manifestation. In due season, we will reap if we faint not. It's a promise of God. Don't doubt it. Don't be weary in well-doing, and don't stop speaking it. There's power. If life and death are in the power of the tongue, believe me, sickness and healing are in the power of the tongue. Poverty and, and prosperity are in the power of the tongue. Speak what God has promised. Speak what God has said over you. He has also promised that if we will confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. 
He has promised that he will give the Holy Spirit to them who ask. And I go back to something I said more than once just during this last healing series, which is we don't typically require a lot of evidence from somebody when they tell us they got saved. We typically don't require a lot of evidence of ourselves. How do you know you're saved? Well, and again, that answer, there might be 30, 40 different, wildly different experiences. But I've told you mine. How did I know I was saved? Because somebody explained to me that when I prayed this prayer and believed this, that I would be. I didn't have a vision. I didn't have a, anything physical happened to me. I just believed what I was taught and I acted on it by praying a very specific prayer. How did I know I was filled with the Spirit? Now, many people, many believers, uh, when they come to be filled with the Spirit, they do experience something that might be a little more tangible. I didn't. I prayed to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I began to speak in tongues without feeling anything, without experiencing anything. Well, that, if you didn't experience anything, how'd you start to speak in tongues? Because the Word told me I could. How do you know you received the Holy Spirit if you didn't feel anything? Because it says that He will never refuse the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Well, how do you know you got it? Because I asked for it. Asked for Him. I asked for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When I say it, that's what I mean, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not the Holy Spirit. He's not an it. And again, how do you know that Jesus lives in you? How do you know Jesus saved you? Saved you? Because I believed and I confessed. Now, he has manifested himself in my life in many ways since then. But that's all I had to do. It's the same way with these. How do you know you're healed? You didn't feel healed. Because the word says. I'll start to feel that way. How do you know he's saved? Because I asked. Because the word says. I will start to act that way. You will start to see that salvation in my life. And if you've been walking with Christ for 10 years, 20 years, and nobody knows you're a Christian, maybe you need to go back and say, well, did I get saved? Or what's wrong with me? Because as we grow, you know, these, again, work out your salvation. Salvation is something that takes place on the inside, but something really does change. And as we grow, that salvation is going to cotter God's semi. It's going to work its way to the outside. And people will be able to see. And it's going to affect your life. It's going to affect the lives of others. But it starts with your decision. So let me start with this. Uh, Let me pray first. Heavenly Father, if there's anybody in the sound of my voice who does not know you, has never made a decision to confess Christ as Lord and receive the precious gift of salvation, that you would move on them, make them very, very aware of that need today, and grant them, create in them, a desperate desire and a sense of urgency to be saved, to be born again today. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.